Do you think you may have a problem with your alcohol consumption or drug use? Are you thinking about quitting and want to know what all the sober hype is about? Are you in recovery and chose to tune in for some inspiration? Whatever the reason, I'm so grateful you are here with me today. My name is Sarah, and I am the creator and host of this podcast. I spent most of my life drinking, and eventually I realized how alcohol was negatively impacting my life in many ways. One day at the age of 39, I decided I was sick and tired of feeling sick and tired, and I reached out for help. I have been sober since 2012, and it has changed my life in ways I never imagined. I am so happy that I got the chance to live a more comfortable life, free of the chains of addiction. Today, my life just keeps getting better. Sober Gratitudes was born out of the desire to recover out loud so that others could see the hope in sobriety. In each episode, I speak with a recovered alcoholic or addict who shares how their life changed for the better after they got sober. I welcome you to subscribe to my podcast to hear these amazing stories of people from all walks of life. They too want to share in this mission to help others and to end stigmas of addiction. I promise you, you will be inspired. Whether you have been here before or you were a first-time listener, I would be so grateful if you would take a minute to write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show so that it can reach more people who may be struggling. You can also reach me at sobergratitudes at gmail.com with any questions or comments. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you again for dropping in today and welcome to Sober Gratitudes. Hi, Jen. Hi. Welcome to Sober Gratitudes. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm, thank you so much for accepting my invitation to be on the show. I, I mean, I can't tell you how excited I am that your message of hope is going to be forever on my podcast. Um, the, message, the message of hope that you have, and I've listened to you on other podcasts, and I've read your book, you know, that message of hope that you have that, that blossomed out of your experiences and addiction and trauma is just so incredible. Um, you're an amazingly strong presence on social media, um, not just because of your pink hair, but because of the, the quality of who you are and how you really truly want to um, end stigmas and educate people and show your vulnerability. I, I really admire that about you is that, you know, like I can, I looked at your account the other day and it, or maybe a couple of weeks ago and you were sharing how it was a kind of a tough day for you. And I'm like, okay, like I get, I have that, like, sometimes I think to myself, I should have perfect days all the time. Like, and then I realized I'm like, no, like recovery is, is a journey and we can have hard days, some harder than other, but others. But, um, so I just really appreciate that you being that you're such a presence in social media and through, you know, your book, Shape of a Woman, um, and and the exposure that you have, that you are, you're just so humble and you're so real and I know you're helping so many people. So, so that, that's why I'm just so grateful today that, um, that you're going to share your story with us and, and tell us how, how you got to sobriety and how recovery works for you. Um, and, um, can I first share one of the reasons why you're so humble? How I said okay, sure, yeah, <laughs> okay, okay. So, so I asked, um, I asked Jen to um, be a keynote speaker at um, a rehab facility near my home that I volunteer at, and I was really nervous because I had already asked her to be on sober gratitude. So I was like, oh, I'm asking her too much, but but the for the women that are in this rehab facility. Um, have similar backgrounds as Jen. And so I thought maybe this, you know, this is my higher, like the, my higher power saying this is like a good fit. So I was really nervous to ask her and I like rehearsed, rehearsed what I would text her and what, what I would say. And the, what the, what she said back was simply, oh my God, I would be so honored. And I was just like, I'm like, that's it. This woman's amazing. She's just <laughs> so humble. And, um, 
so yeah, so she's going to be on a virtual event, which I'm going to be plugging the heck out of. Um, and that's going to be at the end of July. But today, yeah, for our podcast, we're going to talk about um, trauma and addiction. And But before we get more into that, Jen, can you tell us about you know, your story, uh, how you got to sobriety? Sure. I'd be honored. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, tr- I truly, am, I truly am honored. Like, I, I mean, I get asked to do a lot of podcasts, but I never feel any less like moved that people want to hear my story. It's just amazing that just by telling my truth, just by us telling what we've been through, that we can actually change the course of someone's life. I mean, think about that. That power is never lost on me. I mean, even today, I have nine years in recovery. Um, it never gets old. It just blows my mind that all of the things for my entire life that I believe that I had to hide because, I, because it made me so damaged, those are the very things that are saving lives today. Like, whoa. Yeah. So I am, I am honored. St- I mean, t- still today that just, it's just so powerful recovery and healing and <sighs> trauma work and, you know, harm reduction, all the things I'm so passionate about, you know, I'm, I'm still just everyday feel moments of just like, it's just, it moves me. This life is really, really special. Um, so yeah, I totally would love to tell my story. <laughs> and Thank it's you. funny because uh, sometimes I feel like, well, how, who else wants to hear my story? Like, you know, like, geez, haven't everybody heard it? But, you know, it's cool because with these different podcasts, you know, sure, maybe I've told my story in other ones, but it's all different audiences. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, anyways. Um, so yeah, it's, really impossible and I always say this it's impossible for me to share about my addiction story or my recovery story or my healing without telling my childhood story they are the exact same thing Um, they are completely connected Um, my addiction and my self-harm and my eating disorders and, you know, the shame and all the things that I, I work through to this day. Um, those were all just simply coping skills to deal with trauma. And so sometimes when we can put it in that perspective, I don't really like, um, you know, people focus a lot on bad, quote unquote, bad behaviors or, you know, um, negative behaviors or whatever. I like to just toss all that out the window. A lot of that's trash. The truth is it's just a way to cope with pain. Very simple. It's, it's not, um, you know, a personality problem. In fact, lots of times mental illnesses are actually, you know, mental injuries. Um, anyways, so my childhood, you know, I cannot remember any happiness, <laughs> you know, truly. Um, when I was, you know, I was born into my mom, she unfortunately suffers from a lot of trauma. Um, a lot of, you know, she has Munchausen, Munchausen by proxy which if your listeners aren't familiar, many people are not familiar, but Munchausen syndrome is where you inflict harm onto yourself and Munchausen by proxy is where you inflict harm onto your children. Um, And so I grew up very confused. You know, she was very unpredictable, Um, very hot and cold and, you know, a lot of depression and then a lot of mania. Um, and I just wanted her to love me. You know, I, I really, I, my very first memories and I, and I've spoken about this before is that, you know, the first real first memory I can clearly put together 
is I remember I used to lay on the floor and I'd smash my little face on the carpet and I would try to see her foot. I tried to see her walking around and her bedroom door would be locked and I would try to watch her. And I just wanted to be close to her. I actually wanted to be her. Um, and she just was not capable. You know, she just, um, you know, was hurting. And I, it's taken me a lot of healing to get to this point, to get to this perspective. And my, my perspective is constantly changing. Um, and I think that's what happens when we're constantly doing healing work. Um, but my perspective today on this date, on this podcast, is that she was just, she is very wounded and she suffers a lot. And so that suffering just infected our entire house, unfortunately. And the abuse was, you know, bad. Um, so I was a child starving for love. My dad, you know, um, he just very codependent and um, just never stopped her from hurting us. Um, just never, you know, he just couldn't acknowledge it. He's the same way today. You know, it's no different. He just cannot face it. So here I am, 43, spent literally almost my entire life escaping pain and not wanting to face stuff. So I can tell you today, I get it. You know, I get it. It's not good. It's not okay, especially when you have children. But I get where that comes from. Um, and when I was, you know, about three, two and a half or three, my parents joined a religious cult, <laughs> which is like so weird. It feels like so weird in 2020. Um, but these things happen and they were, they were happening big time back in the seventies. This is when like it was the, a lot of fanatical religious movements were happening. You know, the Jim Jones deal was going on and, you know, so much stuff. <clears throat> and so you know, we all fled, we lived in California, we all moved across, you know, the country to Mobile, Alabama. And, um, you know, it's, as the years went on, um, the abuse became extreme, financial, spiritual, religious. Um, and I was a child from a home that they believed was, um, possessed by demons. They saw my mom's mental illness as a demon possession and not as a medical issue. So she never sought treatment. Um, and so I was, you know, I, I firmly believe, especially with all the work now I've done about child abuse, um, education and awareness, I was a perfect target to be molested. Because, you know, my family was just so shattered and just everything was all over the place and they had complete control of everybody there. And so, you know, I, one day, you know, the elder who we were taught was closer to God than any of us would be, you know, he was, he had the ends, you know, to heaven, he had the ends to everything to, you know, he spoke to God and we, we didn't, you know, um, <clears throat> he called me in his office and I was about five and he sat me on his lap. And I do remember very clearly the first day, the very, the very first day. And a lot of times with trauma memories, you know, they come in like flashes of smells, um, flashes of pictures. It's not like a, a smooth running film, you know, of the whole process. It's just like little flashes but I, I remember the first day very clearly because um, he had me sit on his lap and he, he told me that, you know, I was special and that, you know, um, I was one of God's children and that, you know, I was good. And he colored with me in a coloring book and we memorized Bible verses. And I felt so happy. I felt, you know, I've been dying for somebody to love me for so long 
for someone to sit with me and talk to me, anything, you know, that I just felt like it was a very, it's very interesting looking back on it, but it, it was a very good memory. Um, and that's how grooming works. That that's, um, it was all part of a manipulation and a game and, um, part of the, of his process. And so, you know, I felt really happy and really special. And, um, over time though, you know, those experiences were just became so uncomfortable and so, um, scary and confusing and, um, you know, I don't like to get too triggery. I used to get very, very graphic um, in my shares, but I've learned now, you know, um, it's really less important to get into the details. Plus, I also know how triggering it can be for some people who may be listening. But, you know, he ended up, you know, sexually molesting me until I was 10. Um, and I never told anyone. I just pulled my dress down and, and left the office and um, would just lay in bed at night and just go over things in my mind. And over the years of this going on and things becoming more uncomfortable and, you know, the sexual acts becoming more invasive and I'd have to, I would, disassociate from my body and I would just leave myself there to him like a piece of trash and that those words that I just said this has carried out through my entire life up to several years ago is just leaving myself like a piece of trash for whoever may just trip over me to do whatever they wanted and um You know, I would just, I hated myself. And I think, you know, what's interesting is that people don't have experience with being abused by someone that's supposed to love them. Someone that is in charge of caring for them, their parents, their siblings, pastors, teachers, coaches, you know, these are not strangers. These are people that you are that are put in place to protect you. Abuse does not change the way a child sees that person. It does not make us hate, feel disgust, not love. It doesn't change that. What it does, it changes the way we see ourselves. I still loved that elder. I still wanted him to approve of me. I still loved my mom and my dad and my brother, and I wanted them to love me back, and I was willing to do anything to get that. But when I looked in the mirror, I slowly hated myself. I just, until I've been doing healing work as you know, in my late 30s to 40-year-old woman, have I ever been able to sit in my own skin? And, you know, my son is seven. And I look at my son, and this is what's, in, you know, what blows my mind about now being a mom is that, you know, super important if you're going to heal, if you're healing from childhood trauma and then you're a mom. Because raising your children also brings a lot of stuff up about your own childhood, you know, and, and if you're not on top of your healing work, it can really take you down. At least that's my experience and experience of others I've spoken with. Um, yeah, but, but I, 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 I've had that, that experience. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of things going on, especially with my son. He's seven and I, I have no idea what uh, sexual health is like what is a healthy sexual behavior for children I, I know from books because I'm very you know 
I'm on top of it. I read a lot of books. I talk to therapists, you know, everything is healthy, you know, like everything's okay. But see, I watch things because I don't know for my own life because my sexuality was extremely distorted. Um, I was very hypersexual as a, as a child, masturbating constantly. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, I was, I can see you by the way. <laughs> I, I, I thought you could. Yeah. <laughs> For everyone listening, I clean the house all day and I am not showing my disgusting face in my jammies at this moment. Right. Anyways. She, um, yeah. And I, and I, and I'm on the East coast. So I had more time to do all that and get ready. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not doing video today. Sorry. But yeah. Um, so I had a lot of hypersexuality behaviors. Um, that is common. That is common. So with my son being seven, it is a normal, appropriate age for him to start doing certain things. You don't have to get too embarrassing for him. Someday he's going to be 18 and kill me. You know, if he ever hears these, he's like, oh my God, mom. But, but knowing these things are happening or seeing it, whatever, um, I've really had to bump up some of my trauma work because I get panicked and scared and I don't know, is, is that okay? You know, have I done something that's, am I not being a good mom? Like, because for me, everything sexual has always been painful. Always, 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 always. Even to my shameful too. shameful, painful, confusing. So confusing. Um, I used sex as an act of self-harm in my teens. Um, I think people assume self-harm is only cutting. And I would just tell you absolutely not that, um, you know, risky sexual behavior is self-harm. Addiction is self-harm. Eating disorders are self-harm. Isolating is self-harm. There's many, many things that are self-harm that we do um, because we're in pain. So yeah, it's very interesting, but, um, so you, when I was, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so when I was 10, we fled that cult. My, 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 a man started coming around, um, secretly and offering to rescue families from the situation. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And so, my dad, I think finally, you know, finally, and to be fair, everyone was abused. So my dad was financially, spiritually, and religiously abused. And if you don't know what religious abuse is, it's just basically taking the Bible and just using it to your benefit to harm and shame people and control people. Um, And years down the road, what I've kind of put two and two together is that my dad could not afford the tithing, which is money that you give to a church. Mm -hmm. Uh, They, they wanted 10% of each family's income per week. We were very poor. And so what I've kind of put two and two together as things have progressed and someone approached me about, you know, they were doing a documentary on, on the cult that I grew up in and stuff is that I was the gift given in exchange for that tithing. So, yeah, it's heavy, right? Um, But there was a lot of, you know, spiritual abuse going on. And, and, you know, like I said, my dad is very codependent and just does not want to look at stuff um, or face anything. And so that gave my dad, I think, this finally, this like, whoa, like, maybe this is bad. And we just, I mean, we were there one day and then we were gone. I didn't say goodbye to anybody just we were gone and I thought ah it's over you know by 10 um I was really becoming confused because I was I went to the school at the cult you know and we were taught how wrong sex was and how and how wrong um perversion was and I and things started not jiving like, but I'm doing this, you know, with this elder. Um, 
And, it, and so, yeah, it was interesting. So I thought it's over. So now I can move on with my life and I don't have to be a bad girl anymore because I always have taken ownership over what happened. In fact, until I was in my thirties, did I finally come to terms and swallow the fact that I was a victim? Thirties. Mm. I have always taken ownership because I never told anybody and that's all part of the mind fuck. That's all part of the trauma and the, and the grooming and the manipulation of it all is that we, we, we see the, our silence and somehow secrets, you know, that we keep as children, um, those secrets hole up inside of us and they transmute into our secrets. Those are not my secrets. Those have never been my secrets. Those are their secrets. I wasn't keeping my secrets. I was keeping theirs, but I didn't know that. My whole life, I did not know that. Um, my whole life, I felt I was a participant and a dirty child and a perverted child and probably a molester myself. Hmm. So... We moved back to California and of course my trauma followed me. I mean, <laughs> you know, as a woman now who does a lot of trauma work, like everything makes sense. Well, duh, you know, but at that time I just, you know, it, it, it shocked me because I'm at, I'm in California. He's gone. My mom was absolutely her mental health took a terrible turn for the worse when we left there. Cause she loves that organization. It was disbanded as a religious cult, by the way. It, it was broken apart. It is over. Um, does not no longer exist. But my mom, you know, loved it there. And so she started um, you know, her newest, she always went through these phases of ways to get attention. That is part of Munchausen syndrome. So I do not believe, let me make it very clear, that people that attempt suicide or commit suicide, that they're doing it for attention. That is not what I'm saying. With Munchausen, they do a lot of things for that attention. So her like suicide, uh, I call them suicide fiascos because it really, they were more about getting us to stop, getting me, unfortunately, for some reason, it was mainly me, to stop her from doing that. You know, it wasn't really a thought, a plan, you know, it's very interesting, but yeah, it would. Major it manipulation. Start, it, that is what much, it's very manipulative and it's, um, you know, that is her whole identity, identity is based upon medical emergencies. Hmm. Um, yeah, you should, there's ama some amazing Netflix specials, documentaries on it. Um, one is called Sharp Objects. Anyways, yeah, so it's it's very interesting, but, um, you know, everything just became so chaotic, and my nightmares started coming, um, flash, flashbacks of, of being with, with that elder, and um, of just feeling so unloved and unworthy, and um, I started, you know, chewing my food up and spitting it out before I'd swallow it. Um, and, and try to gain some control. I, I just, I was disassociating without any, just at random, just at random. Um, super hypervigilant, super, you know, jumpy and, and always scared. And my body just always felt out of control. And I was 10. <laughs> it's like, whoa, you know, um, and I craved control and I started con trying to control the size of my body because, you know, um, my mom also had, has battled eating disorders and would be in hospitals with stomach tubes and ripping them out. She'd be handcuffed to the beds, you know, because she'd be trying to rip it out because she didn't want to be fed through the stomach tube. And I would watch her and I still wanted to be her. I still wanted to be like her. She was my mom. It never changed how I saw her. It changed how I saw me. 
And I wanted, and I, so I started trying to, maybe if I'm skinny, she'll love me. Since that's what matters to her so much, I want to matter to her too. And that just happened to coincide with the fact that I was suffering from so much trauma and, and that's very common as eating disorders to manifest themselves, you know, as a way to control our body and as a way, you know, to numb out, believe it or not, starving myself helped me numb out. Um, spitting food out made me feel some control. Things just got very bad for me. And I, um, when I, around 12, I, I began at night fantasizing about killing myself. Um, I just really saw nothing good in my life. I really saw nothing good in myself. Um, and I remember, you know, making, I started making plans, you know, um, my mom had tons of opiate medication. She's, you know, a prescription addicted to a lot of prescription drugs as well. Um, and I had watched her fiascos throughout the year and I kind of learned, like, I kind of saw like what I would need to do <clears throat> to end it. And I, a friend invited me over and I rarely went anywhere. My mom, you know, she just was so consumed with so much that we rarely, I never, I ne I've never had a sleepover, which is hilarious. But when my kids get bigger, I'm going to have sleep, tons of sleepovers. <laughs> <laughs> never once. Yeah. I never was allowed to have kids over. And I think about it now. My mom was so dangerous. I'm so grateful mm -hmm. that, that we didn't. Um, but, um, a friend invited me over. Her mom was going to pick me up and do all the driving. So my mom was okay with it. You know, my mom didn't have to go out of her way whatsoever. Um, and I was going to spend the night and there was a guest house on their little ranch or whatever. And there was a bottle of vodka there. And it's just amazing how innocently without realizing, of course, I'm 12. I have no clue about alcoholism. I have no clue about trauma none. I've never even heard those words. Um, I, I just have zero like knowledge whatsoever, nor do I realize what an absolute time bomb I am. What an absolute breeding ground for addiction I am that I always had been since I was born. I had no clue. I was born into trauma, severe trauma. All trauma is trauma. Um, it does not matter. And I always, I, 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 there's a lot of amazing um, definitions of trauma, but my favorite is by my friend, Britt Frank. She's a therapist. And she says, the opposite of trauma is choice. Mm -hmm. Anything that happens that we are not in control over, whether it happens to us or around us, is trauma. Anything. And trauma is not what happens, but it's what happens inside of us. Mm -hmm. So there may be things in my life that I actually have not even had to work through. They're just a non-issue that may happen to someone else and they are having to do major trauma work because of it and vice versa. Yeah. You know, there's things that happen to me that I am, you know, like the, the image of me looking under the door, and watching my mom, that is something I still work through. But that may be something that lots of people go, have experienced. And it's a non-issue compared to other things. So it doesn't matter what the trauma is. What, it, what matters is how it manifests inside of us and in our bodies. Jen, I'm so glad. I just want to interject real quick. I'm really, I, I'm, I'm grateful that you brought that up, that trauma is trauma. And that's something I struggled with um, when I kind of had a, um, this mental breakdown three years into my recovery and not knowing what the heck was going on. Um, and I, and I never thought that what I experienced qualified, like I would maybe compare it to what you've been through or other stories I've heard about other people. And I think, well, no, I don't qualify because this, this, and the other thing, but what you're saying right now and what you're clarifying for any listeners that, that have had think that they might have traumatic experiences, but they're kind of pushing it to the side because they hear Jen's story 
and they think, mm-hmm. oh no, mine wasn't that bad. So I, so I, why I shouldn't feel this, you know, I shouldn't be having any problems like with, with any kind of addiction, you know, whether it's food or gambling or sex or, you know, or alcohol or drugs or whatnot, that trauma is trauma is trauma. And how you, I love how you said um, that it's how we receive what happens mm-hmm. outside of us. Um, and, and it's not our fault. It's how we receive it and how we experience it. And if we're holding on to it like a secret, like a shameful secret, then that's, uh, to me, that's a clear indication that it's trauma. And mm-hmm. um, so I'm, I'm really, I'm really, really grateful that you clarified that, that, um, but go on for the sake of time, you know, like I, I'm yeah. listeners to hear about, you know, cause you have such an incredible story and <laughs> you're so like, you know, um, doing so well in your recovery right now and, and you continue to grow. And I, and I, and I think the listeners would love to hear how you, you, you know, how you got to that place of, you know, I know you, you had, were, were, were drugs more your issue or was it alcohol or both? You know, it shifted. So I, be, I was an alcoholic by the age of 12. Um, alcohol saved my life. And that sounds strange, but it, it absolutely did save my life <clears throat> um, from suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, it ended up flipping on me and almost taking my life. Um, but it, again, it's just a coping skill. It was a poor coping skill, but it did work. It was a solution at the time. Um, and so my, my alcoholism grew, you know, um, just horribly throughout the years. And then I was, um, I had to have a wisdom tooth pulled and I was prescribed Vicodin. And another time, I mean, I'm a time bomb. I'm just like, I'm just a breeding ground for more. You know, I have no clue. I still at this point in my early twenties, have no idea what, what I'm in for. I have no idea that, that what I'm really doing is just trying to numb stuff from my past. I just, I just have no idea what's going on. And so I took these pills, you know, a couple, a couple doses or whatever. And I was, you know, I always say like opiates took my life, like a thief in the night, like, Oh, instantly I was obsessing on getting more. And so I did that, you know, um, and to just sum up my addiction story, you know, I ended up, you know, homeless and on the streets and I was, um, an IV heroin and meth user for about 13 years. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Eating from garbage cans. Um, I was losing my teeth or rotting out of my mouth. I had abscesses all over track marks um, I've lived in cars and motel rooms, um, under bridges, um, you know, and, and I always sought out, um, sexual predators subconsciously. And that's very also common and important, I think, for people that have been sexually abused to know that what happens as we get older can go all different directions. We, beca- we can become hypersexual which is still an act of self-harm <laughs> um, when we're, when we're hypersexual because of trauma, um, you can become sexually repulsed, you know, repulsed by sex. Um, and you can also seek out the only affection you've ever known. The only affection I've ever known was as a child was sexual in nature and not in my control. So I would gravitate towards these people you know, and so of course, you know, it makes, like I say a lot, it makes perfect sense now where I'm at in my healing that I, you know, I was sexually assaulted and that I was raped under that bridge, under a bridge once. Um, and I never felt like a victim, even then, even then, did it ever cross my mind that I should you know, call somebody or, you know, um, I always just felt that's what I, that's what I get. This is, you know, what I deserve. Um, this is the life I deserve. I always believed that, that the existence that I was just suffocating in was all there was for me, for someone like me. I've always separated myself from everybody else. I'm unlovable. I'm unworthy. I'm dirty. I'm disgusting, you know, um, I'm perverted, I'm damaged, all that stuff. So I was in and out of jail lots of times and um, I ended up 
being sentenced to prison. And, you know, about a year into my prison sentence, um, you know, I had a, a moment that, you know, something very big happened to me that day. It's very difficult to explain, except that a sensation just came all over my body and, um, you know, it just kind of hit me. I was 34. I had nothing. I didn't even own a pair of pants. I had no friends. I had, um, you know, I owned nothing. I had nothing. My teeth were falling out. I had scars and wounds and um, horrible record of tons of felonies and all this stuff. And I had no clue how to live. I had no clue how people functioned. I just had never... I went from a child, a, you know, a wounded child to living on the streets or, you know, drinking myself to death or whatever. Um, and a little tiny spark just ignited in my heart that finally believed that just a little bit, you know, that maybe I wasn't, I didn't want to die like that. And that maybe I was worth just a little bit more than, you know, overdosing under that bridge or in, in the riverbed as a transient mm. it's amazing that that did not happen to me I it know. truly defies <laughs> all <laughs> logic <laughs> truly no, really incredible like that now had you had started any kind of recovery program while in prison so before that experience before that experience, um, not in prison, but during my previous times in, you know, stints in jail, in county jail, um, I was sentenced to many different um, outpatient, different levels. Some, some were outpatient treatment. Some were just go to meetings, get a court, court card signed. I was sentenced to a 30-day inpatient one time. And then I was also sentenced to a six-month in custody which was a behavioral modification program, but they did have, obviously they touched on, on drugs and alcohol and, and sexual abuse and a lot of things. Um, so I had seeds planted mm. and, you know, I'm a big fan of seeds. I always talk about the seeds. The seeds are it. The seeds go bigger than any, in my opinion, the seeds of kindness and compassion and hope and love and dignity and healing and whatever go further than any recovery institution can ever provide. This is my belief that these seeds stay. They stayed with me so long. Um, You're lucky that they did. Some people don't see those seeds because that for me- even yeah. I mean, yeah. Some people, the seed may not change a person's route. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's where like, I don't approach people anymore um, with just the sole purpose of them becoming abstinent or anything, nothing. I have no, the, all I want to do is love people that don't feel lovable mm -hmm. because that matters. Mm -hmm. It really matters. Like who I am today is not worth anything more than who I was under the bridge. Not even a single second. I mean, I'm worth the exact same. I just, I had no idea, you know, but I am. And so every person, no matter if they ever, if they just say, I never want to get sober, I can't fathom it. They're still worth the same as those of us who are, you know? Um, so that was, you know, that was May 1st, 2011. That's my recovery date. Um, when I paroled, I, uh, you know, I went, I had to have my court card signed. I went to NA and AA meetings. Um, and I, you know, did that program for a long time. And I would say I'm still, obviously, I still am a member there. I have lots of friends and family there. And when I say family, I don't mean blood family. I mean, my friends that are my family. Mm -hmm. Um, and I still speak there and stuff. Um, but about two years in my recovery, and I think you can relate to this, I, about two years in my recovery, I became suicidal again. Um, everyone kept telling me, it works if you work it. It works if you work it. I was working it. I was 
doing everything that everyone told me. I was rigorously honest. I was working on these quote unquote character defects, which I think are trauma responses most of the time anyways. A lot of the language that we use can be very harmful. We, we should be more careful, I believe. And I, I'm more careful with it myself. It works if you work it for what it is supposed to work for. But no traditional, no reco addiction recovery program is trauma-informed. It's not supposed to be. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not saying anything bad about any of the paths that you can take. It's not there for that. So you remove the only tools I have ever used to survive being in my skin, which are drugs and alcohol and behaviors, right? That's what I worked on. I worked on my behaviors. I made amends. You know, I, I tried, I learned how to live without using, which was, you know, a full-time job in itself and all that stuff but I had never touched on the trauma, even though I had spoken with my sponsor and, and done the steps and I, and I touched on some of the things that I could kind of put together. My sponsor is not trauma trained. No, they, she's not supposed to be. That's their people. Mm -hmm. So even though there is a little bit in some of, and this, I'm just speaking on the 12 step literature because I, I'm a firm believer in all paths. I'm not a big 12 step thumper anymore. I'm just all paths, whatever works for everybody, you know? Um, even though it, there is some small print in there about seeking outside help, that, that is not the general consensus a lot of times. A lot of times it's that work it, it works if you work it. So why is it not working, you know? Um, <laughs> And I thought, if this is recovery, I want to, I want to fucking die. Yeah. Because I was tortured in my body. I was having nightmares and flashbacks, flashbacks of smells and sensations that I could not place. I could not understand it. I was just depressed. My eating disorders were coming back. Um, I was pinching myself really hard to where my skin was bruising. I just hated myself. And... I was sober, which is way worse. <laughs> I mean, it, it's like a double whammy. I would rather be under a bridge, um, starving, but loaded than to be sober in a home and suffering from complex, you know, unresolved trauma. It's yeah, hell. That, I agree. <laughs> I identify. I yeah. have like the same story, different experiences, but like, you know, that that pain of re, you know, like, and it becomes physiological too. And I yep. had to learn that, you know, we learn so much about trauma when we're in trauma therapy about like why yeah. our bodies, why our minds are doing things that were, I knew for myself, I'm like, I'm crazy. I'm going crazy. I'm going crazy. And, and, um, I didn't realize it was unresolved. Um, right. trauma that I had, I, like, I had to start my healing at that point and I'm still continue, I continue to heal from it this day. And, and I, you know, I don't know if that's something that you can, it, Identify. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's like kind of, I, I, I believe trauma is the number one offender of relapse. I believe trauma is the number one reason that people are miserable in recovery today. I see a lot and speak to a lot of people with long-term recovery, whatever your consideration of whatever you consider long-term, you know, yeah. that are suffering because they have never put two and two together, which blows my trauma mind because I'm all, I, you know, I try, like I said, trauma is my jam. Like I, I see, I, I could point it out from a mile away, you know? Um, but there are people in this world today, which is just shocking, but are, have no clue that their anxiety and all these things that they're suffering from, they've never, and their poor relationship skills and, and their, you know, all these things, they've never quite pieced together the fact that they're, you know, were raped at 16. Or let me be very clear, the addiction experience itself alone is a traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. The fact and any addiction, whether that be sex, gambling, alcohol, drugs, self-harm, eating disorders, those are all situations where we have lost the power of choice, correct? 
So like I said earlier, like my friend says, my most simple, simple definition, you know, the, about the opposite, the opposite of, tr of trauma is choice. So all these times that even let's just say you had no memorable quote unquote, you know, abuse or whatever, and maybe you lived with your parents and they gave you your drugs and you know, you're never homeless or whatever, but just the fact that you cannot control yourself you cannot feel well without taking a pill or a drink and you were sick without it, or you cannot stop no matter what negative consequences were happening all around you. Your friends were leaving, your money was gone, you know, your kids were taken away, whatever things that were going on. You cannot stop yourself from going to the casino or from, you know, that is a, that is a situation where you have no control. That's, is trauma that is traumatic and that will stay in your body even after you leave that situation after the alcohol is gone the drugs are gone you're in gamblers anonymous you're going to you know your eating disorders you know you're doing well in that recovery whatever you know whatever it happens to be that resides in your brain it resides in your body and if you do not address it and treat it um you are either going to relapse die um or be a very very miserable person when life can be so much more so so beautiful yeah and so i i really believe that sobriety save my physical life, but trauma work saved my recovery. Yeah. I love that. I love that. You said that yeah. in the last interview and I wrote that down. I think that is a huge missing piece to a lot of people's recovery, but I, but I also believe it's becoming much more talked about. People are becoming, you know, a lot more hip to it. I even, even people in, you know, old school, uh, AA people, um, you know, I'm finding a lot more response of they are themselves now researching trauma um, and researching the effects. And the thing is that, you know, the, the most important thing to remember is that there's no such thing as as good as it gets in recovery. Like, there's no such thing. It can always and we can always get better and better and better and bigger and bigger. And like, who we are today is great. And as, as on this journey, we are today, like who we are next year. I hope I don't even, I'm not, I don't even resemble me next year. Mm -hmm. Like I want to listen yeah. to podcasts I've done this year and be like, Oh, that doesn't even sound like me anymore. Yeah. Like I want to just transform. And already, even the book I wrote, I wrote a year ago, a, a few months over a year ago. Right. Yeah. I already do not it doesn't hit for me anymore. Mm -hmm. There's things in there that I already want to change, but that's not hypocritical. That doesn't make anyone a liar. It means you're growing. Right. It means and you're growing and keep going, keep yeah, going. That's, that's what I love about recovery, you know, and that's why mm -hmm. I love to share the hope and recovery. And that's my tagline to sober gratitude is that, you know, we just like every year that goes by, I'm like, wow, I can't get better. And, it does like, and, and yeah. by better, I mean, like, I'm just more comfortable in my own skin. And that's just like golden for me because, you know, I live so much of my life, you know, miserable and just seeking out numbing techniques, you know, from mm -hmm. the, 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 the pains of my past. And, and I do the same thing. I listened to podcasts I was on a couple of years ago and I'm like, ah, like, can I yeah. do this again? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, take that off. It's on there forever. Right. Yeah. Right. I'm like, can we do an update? <laughs> yeah. But Hey, that's, yeah. And that's just so great. It's so great. And I, and I think that, um, you know, the more we face pain, the more we face the things we're sure we just can't bear to look at. That's where the goal to change our lives is mm -hmm. like that. That's where it's at. It's in all the stuff we've been running from all the things that we think are going to kill us. It's actually the running from it that kills us mm -hmm. because I, I'm not here to become some new person. Like I, 
every day I'm learning from the woman that was under the bridge. Every day I'm learning from the little girl sitting on the elder's lap. Every day I'm learning from, you know, who I have been throughout the phases of my life, the exact person who I thought no one could love. She has it all. She has everything. Like I honor her. She's worthy. Um, She always has been worthy. And I bring her home with me. I do not want to get rid of her. And I'm speaking of her in third person, but you know what I'm saying? I I promise I'm not disturbed. (laughs) It's just, I've done, I do a lot of meditation and inner child meditation and uh, reparenting work. So I do speak about her in the third person. I write letters to her. Um, It's changed my life. It's changed my recovery. It's um, changed my view on other people. It's opened up my heart so much bigger to instead of looking at her as having character defects and bad behavior and all this stuff that was so drilled into me in the beginning, I now look at her and see those are all things that have I learned from today. And those are all just trauma responses. And she's just trying to survive. And she did a damn good job. Yeah, she sure did. <laughs> Everybody who has survived, you know, any length of time in, in an addiction or, you know, an abusive relationship or a war or a car, whatever it happens to be, um, a loss of a child, a loss of a parent, um, you know, sibling abuse. I have this, my brother is, you know, as a lot of stuff separating from your families, whatever. Mm-hmm. All the things we did to survive all that, you know, that should be honored. You know, yeah, I mean, a lot of things happen. I have had to make amends for a lot of behaviors as an adult. But what I never do is, is for, I don't need to forgive myself for anything that happened as a child. Mm-hmm. I, what I need to do and what I work on today, I used to focus on forgiving myself, um, but there's nothing to forgive myself for. I was a little girl. Yeah. And so I shifted that because words matter. How we speak to other people and how we speak to ourselves matters way more than we realize. It really, it's subconscious. It seeps into your skin and you don't even realize it's happening. Mm -hmm. So instead of focusing on forgive yourself, you didn't, you were just young. Forgive yourself that you didn't tell anybody. Of, you know, you were afraid. I did all that. But what happened is that that forgive myself, those words in reference to me as a child, it still gave me this, this anchor that was telling me there was something to forgive myself for. Hmm. Today, I release myself. I release myself from that because there is nothing that I could have done, did do, didn't do, said, looked like, acted like, anything at all that would have given any excuse for what happened to me as a little girl. Period. End of story. Mm -hmm. Now, my stuff in my addiction as an adult, you know, the crimes I committed, yes. There's a situation where I work on forgiving myself, but anything as a child, you know, 13, I was a, I do not need to forgive myself. I release myself. So I encourage, you know, everybody to somehow, sometimes the words, and I don't know, not sometimes, let me take that back. Mm-hmm. Almost always. In fact, it is studied and proven and, you know, talked about a lot in the therapy field and you know all that stuff is that words change how we see things and so it changes how we feel about situations it changes how we feel about other people so I'm very careful today about the words I speak to myself and I'm very careful today about the words I speak on others because even if they're words that don't bother me they might harm somebody else yeah and I'm not here today to harm people intentionally Oh, that's beautiful. Jen. So, 
Yeah. Jen, I, you know, you know, we're, we're getting at the hour hour here and I, and I just feel like we could talk forever. <laughs> and I say that to all my listeners, cause I just learned so much from yeah. every, every um, guest that comes on board. And I've, I've learned so much from you today and I hope the listeners have, I, I know the listeners have as well. And, um, you know, you said in a, um, another podcast that, you know, that you are not alone. It's a message that I think, mm-hmm. you know, is so important for, for women. And I speak about women just cause I am one and, you know, I thought I was so alone and I thought I was the only one experienced what I experienced. I was the only one who, you know, fucked up when I was sober and, you know, didn't, you know, and I didn't understand why I was behaving the way it's, and I was the only one who did certain things, but to find out like getting honest and, and, and getting comfortable and, and being with people who weren't ju- not judgmental and letting myself trust them, learning that I w- wasn't alone. And then to be able to share these experiences with, with people. And then the more I share, the more I find out there's, I'm not, I'm not really that unique. You know, there's mm-hmm. so many of us, which is really sad. Like the Me Too movement, my God, mm-hmm. you know, there's the, we ca- we came out from under the rugs. Right. And, and so, so like when, when, so people listening are like, wait a minute, I came to this, I'm listening to this cause it's a sober gratitudes podcast. I know. <laughs> and I know, you know, where we find our gratitudes and all that, but, but if you can just, you know, end with where, where you find gratitude in your life today. Oh, let me tell you, <laughs> we we are almost that I could go on and on about yeah about what I'm grateful for, you know, um, I, I am grateful to be able to sit in a chair for this in a whole hour and not be so hyper aware of my body that I feel like I'm going to crawl out. I feel grateful that today I wake up and I'm not having nothing controls how I physically feel. Like I, I don't have to search for a substance to feel better. I don't have to um, throw up in the bathroom because I'm just consumed. You know, I just, I have so much opportunity today to do whatever it is that my heart wants. Um, I'm a mommy, you know, and I, and I, I was wrong. I do not, I'm not a child molester. You know, what happened to me was not part of me, was not my fault, was not my, a sickness in me. It was a sickness in someone else. And I am whole and I am capable and I can raise my children from the heart of the mother that I am. I'm not my mom. You know, um, I'm grateful for, to be able to be proud to be a woman today, that I'm not ashamed of my story you know, that I know that my story, every single messy, embarrassing, shocking, disgusting, whatever word anyone may want to put on it, every single thing, every, all of it, I own all of it. In fact, I'm proud of it because it, it got me here. Mm-hmm. It got me who I am today. And it's going to carry me through the lady under the bridge is going to carry me all the way to the end. And so I just really encourage and hope that, you know, find a picture of yourself at your worst state, find a picture of yourself in the deepest part of your addiction or a picture of yourself when you were 13 and you, you know, that boy touched you when you didn't want him to, or, you know, that babysitter, you know, touched you when you, you know, for boy, I hear a lot of stories about boys that are molested by babysitters Mm -hmm. Um, or a picture of you. The first time you remember your dad came home really drunk and hit you. Find a picture of yourself at some point or all points and look at that picture and close your eyes and envision yourself today, walking over to that woman, child, whatever it is and hugging them and telling them that they are perfect and that none of that was their fault and that together we're safe now. I do this every day with a picture of myself as a little girl, but I also do it as, you know, with a picture of me. I have some pretty gnarly pictures of anybody goes on my Instagram <laughs> of me um, in addiction. Yeah. There are many, mm-hmm. but 
she is a champion, man. What she has survived and she is perfect. And if she were here today, I would just hug and kiss all over those, all over those wounds because she's worth, she's worthy of everything in this life. So, um, you know, I, I just, I speak to myself differently today. I speak to all parts of myself and I, you know, it matters. It really matters. Words yeah. do matter. And those are beautiful mm-hmm. words. And they're such Thank loving you. words. And, you know, for people like you and I, and there's so many of us like who are, who are out there who um, have experienced trauma in, in similar ways and, and to learn how to love that inner child. I know, like, I love that, that, that I have a picture of myself when I was little holding my blankie and sucking my thumb. Mm. And I was only, I think maybe 15 months old and already I knew how to self-soothe before anything, mm-hmm. anything traumatic had happened to me at that point. So I would look at that picture. I still do. And I look at it and I was like, I know I'm capable of healthy coping tools. Yes. And um, I lost that for a long time but I'm so grateful that now I'm at this place and I get to have people like you on a podcast that I never thought I would ever, I never thought I would ever, this is like unbelievable to me that I have the confidence to do something like this. The, but I feel like that all of us together, like we're on kind of like this mission together when we connect the, the women, especially, but men too, cause I know men have been raped and abused mm-hmm. and whatnot that when we really, when we shout, our recovery, when we shout out about it without shame, because I have no shame because mm-hmm. I, and, and I know you feel the same way that we, we, we can help other people to get to a place of asking for help and self-advocating for them to get better because life is better in recovery because it's just to experience world, the world and relationships with a healthy body, mind, and spirit is just better than any high I know mm-hmm. I experience. So I'm just so grateful that we've connected and that we can just build, keep building this, you know, kind of this, this tribe of warriors, educating people and telling young girls, it's okay. And everything's going to be okay. And to reach out for help. So thank you so much for helping me spread this really important message, Jen. And I can't wait for you to be uh, the (laughs) keynote speaker at Mrs. Wilson's house, um, Morristown, New Jersey. It's on July 21st at seven o'clock. It's going to be open to everybody and it's going to be free. So, um, but it's a, it's a rehab facility that houses women who, um, who are, you know, are an active addict or were addicted and alcohol, the alcoholics and uh, mental health issues, um, you name it, incarceration. And it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful rehab facility that um, Jen Elizabeth agreed to be the keynote speaker of because we had to cancel the, the outdoor event because of COVID. So now we have this virtual event. So she so humbly accepted. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so many people are just so grateful that you're going to be a part of this. So thank you again for taking your time and, and um, sharing your, your message of hope, Jen, you're truly an inspiration. Thank you so much for having me. I loved it. I love it. Great. Well, have a great day. You too. Okay. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Thank you to my guest and all of you for listening. I hope what you heard inspires you to look for and recognize the gifts of sobriety. Sober Gratitudes, a podcast dedicated to delivering messages of hope through true stories of recovery. A sober life is possible if you truly want it.